Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Okay, welcome everyone to the Fanalytics podcast. We are entering 2021. You know, last week we did an episode where we did uh, some projections, some conjecture about where the world of sports was going to go on a league-by-league basis. Then we had um, January 6th, the storming of the Capitol. We had social media companies, uh, I don't know, shutting down everything associated with 75 million people. We've got an announcement that the PGA is pulling a a championship event from Donald Trump. And so this is a long-winded way of saying that, you know, while this is a sports analytics podcast, sports is a part of the culture and the culture is, you know, really driven by politics at this moment. So uh, good morning, Mr. Doug Battle. All I'm saying is as we go into 2021, it looks like the ride is going to get even wilder. So how are you doing this morning? Yeah, I'm doing well. I, uh, I'm i glad we didn't do predictions for 2021 beyond sports because uh, I never would have predicted what happened last week and the fallout of that that we've seen, you know, with, with social media and uh, all, I mean, it's affected everything. It's going to affect sports. But man, the one thing that I thought after that happened, I don't know why, but I was watching the Washington football team play Tampa when Washington was still in the game and Heineke was balling out there. And I was like, this is the year that the Washington football team wins the Super Bowl. And it's going to be like a huge win for the PC sports crowd. And it's going to be not even the craziest story in D.C., this year, but for some reason, I thought it was going to just happen, and and I was disappointed to find out that uh, Tom Brady would prevail as he typically does. Yeah, you know, it's um, sports. the The NFL is is got to be the big story at the moment. So we're we're taping this on Monday morning with a national championship college football game this evening. So yeah, won't say too much about that. But you know the the NFL is obviously the big story at the moment. They've they've hit their playoffs. You you mentioned the Washington football team. You know on, on this Monday morning, the big story is uh, the Cleveland Browns Baker Mayfield coming of age. Uh, but but even beyond that, it's almost like the the big story for the NFL at least this week is the 2018 quarterback class coming of age. I'll, I'll make a, a quick observation on that. I think it, it's kind of telling. When you draft quarterbacks, and th- this is kind of a small issue or a pretty significant issue in sports analytics, in fact, but one that's overlooked, is you know not sort of making decisions on a year-to-year or making evaluations on a year-to-year basis, that there is this uh, mature, mature, maturation process that, that has to happen. Now, I, I don't know. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Is, is Baker Mayfield arrived, or did the Steelers just play an epically sloppy game at points um, and you know, is this just kind of the you know the, the uptick in the in the Browns kind of wave with Chubb and Mayfield? Uh, how far mm. do the Browns go? Uh, from what I've seen, the Browns are Jekyll and Hyde. Like one week they look like a Super Bowl team, and the next week they look um, like the worst team in the NFL. So I wouldn't be too shocked to see them, 
out in the next round. But I will say this: I'm pulling for the Browns. I'm now that the Heineke and the Washington football team are out. Uh, Cleveland Browns, like I'm all aboard that bandwagon, trying to see them do something special. Um, just because it's fun. It's fun with like this game. I think on paper the the Browns definitely had a fair shot at Pittsburgh and nobody picked them because they're like, well, Pittsburgh's Pittsburgh. Like Pittsburgh is a playoff team. The Browns are a disappointing team. Pittsburgh wins this game. Like it's ingrained in everyone's head. Just the, the I guess the brands of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cleveland Browns um, and the fact that Cleveland's actually got a pretty dang good group of players that they put on the field every Sunday uh, and they can play with anybody. So I think um, that- I think that's right. That beating the Steelers is kind of a a a, a significant event, right? That the the starting yeah. point, you know, it's almost like the uniforms dictate the line, yes. right? That uh, yes. the the starting point is well, the Steelers are playing the Browns, so the Steelers are going to win. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say this: like I'm very guilty of thinking along those lines. Like even at halftime, I think they were up thirty-five to ten, and they had lost a couple offensive linemen, and they're banged up already uh, had some guys out with COVID or whatnot and I was like I wouldn't be surprised to see Pittsburgh win this game just because that would be so Cleveland that would be so Cleveland Browns to get everyone all excited and then let the team down but let, let me ask you a question so you said you're rooting for the Browns and and I could see that um, why are you rooting for the the Browns though what is it about that team that is yeah. uh, causing you to become a you know maybe a momentary fan yeah, and I'll be clear in saying I don't. I'm not calling myself a Browns fan, uh, so don't worry about that, <laughs> listeners. I'm not that bandwagon. I'm still a New York Giants fan till the day I die. But um, but well, I mean, the first thing is I'm biased toward Cleveland because of Nick Chubb. Okay. Uh, having gone, I was the same. I remember my first day of class seeing him walking to class and texting my dad about it because he was this huge prospect, and I was like, he's massive, and he just looks like. He looks like he's focused on football. <laughs> I don't know. He just always had that. He carried himself in a certain way. Um, so I, I followed him for so long. And, uh, you know, our senior year with with their team making the national championship or whatnot, had a special run, and he came back for that year. So Georgia fans are just enamored with Nick Chubb, and, and we'll pull for him wherever he goes. Now let, me, um, let, me, let me sort of highlight that because that is one of the interesting yeah. things about the Georgia fan base that is uh, – Fairly unique. I mean, look, I, I will always. I'm not a Georgia guy, but I'll always sing the praises of that that fan base in terms of their commitment. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there are a few fan bases that pull for their alumni as intensely as they do at Georgia, to the point where there's even sort of a recurring local story here. Where why don't the Falcons ever draft or you know obtain a lot of Georgia players? That yeah. it is, um, you know, again, kind of an interesting signal of the intensity of the fandom in terms of what Georgia has developed over the years. Yeah, um, and, and Nick has just always been a, a class act and somebody that everybody respects and has done things the right way. So it's fun to see him succeed. He's also, uh, and this will get into my next point. He was a little bit of an underdog going into the NFL. He had a brutal knee injury where he tore just about everything in one of his knees. Uh, his sophomore year in college, and he was never, or he was perceived to never become quite the same player after that. So he was actually drafted after his backup, Sony Michelle, um, 
in and Sony's a heck of a running back. That's a, no slight against him, but but Nick was a second round guy who people were concerned would never be the same player coming off an injury. And to see him overcome that adversity has been a great storyline uh, for for Georgia fans that that love that kid. Um, and then along the same lines, looking at the, the kind of underdog story, of course, you asked me, why do I pull for Cleveland? Why am I not pulling for the Pittsburgh Steelers or, or the Buffalo Bills or whatnot? Um that underdog story is it's universal like every sports movie just about is about a team that nobody thinks can do it and and that has a lot of adversity and, and the odds stacked against them and does something special and i think every every neutral sports fan when they turn on a game they don't necessarily want to watch the better team win every time um it's fun to watch the team that has doubters pull something off and as a new york giants fan and having watched those eli manning super bowls um you know, I, I certainly feel like there's just something special to a to an underdog championship. I think that's yeah, it's a it's a very fair point that uh, mm-hmm. and there's a couple of things embedded in that. No one wants to see you know the 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 casual sports fan or the 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 fan of the team that's not playing is seldom going to root for the New York Yankees, the Duke Blue Devils. Yeah. The, they might wear a Yankees hat uh, just for the fashion. The Dallas Cowboys, right? No one wants to root Man. for the big bully, you know. So you you've almost got a little bit of antipathy towards those brands, and then I think there is also kind of this novel factor of someone new, right? I mean, the the Browns winning an NFL playoff game is something. It, it is something new, strangely. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the NCAA where suddenly there's a. You know, it's uh, the Arkansas Swamp Campus is, uh, you know, making some progress, winning a couple of games, and everyone is, you know, jumping in. It's like, you know, we we love novelty as well. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say this, like, I always do this in my head and in different playoffs, whether it's the March Madness or NBA or NFL, where I start to think, about scenarios and like what if the Browns made it and then whatever team in the NFC I feel like is the least likely to make it but is still alive and like how wild would it be if that was the Super Bowl matchup those two teams Um, March Madness almost every time there's like by the Elite Eight there's like probably a Cinderella team on both sides Um, someone that's like at, at the very best like a eight seed and uh, trying to think, what if our national championship was Butler versus VCU? Like, how crazy would that be instead of Duke versus Kentucky? Um, and, and so I think fans are, I think it's just always, it's more interesting. When you don't have a dog in the fight, you want something interesting to happen, something historic. And the most historic thing that can happen is something that's never been done before. Yeah, the other nice thing, and look, I can't help it. I always watch these things with a little bit of sports analytics Um you know, even if I'm look, I, I I've historically as a kid even pulled for the Pittsburgh Steelers, but I you know I can't help but watch sports without thinking about the analytics, and you know one of the things I do come away with is you know always been fascinated by quarterback analytics. The 2018 quarterback class is like I said reaching maturity. It's an interesting thing, you know, the question of how much data do you actually need before you can make a judgment. Yeah, three years seems pretty seems pretty fair, um, you know, especially for a position that tends to benefit with maturity. Mister Tom Brady coming into his prime any season now. 
that, you know, Baker Mayfield, now we've got a bunch of data, but I'll be honest with you, I don't know where that one's going. I mean, I could. Yeah, I feel like the verdict isn't out on him, but looking at the rest of that class, um, for the most part, it's like Josh Allen is, is, that was a good pick. Like everybody can agree. Lamar Jackson, that was a phenomenal pick. Um, Sam Darnold. Well, let's 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 stay there for you know Lamar Jackson is one that I am still you know I, I love this kid's career and I will admit that going back to draft day 2018, I like probably most of the NFL had huge doubts. Right? I think what did he last to oh, about twentieth? Yeah. yeah, he he was not a top ten guy, and I mean I think the problem for him is. You know, on draft day, we've talked about this, how everyone gets compared to mm-hmm. players that either played at their school or players that they look like or players of the same race or players uh, they're rarely looked at on a, you know, without that comparison. And for some reason, I feel like I heard him compared to Teddy Bridgewater at some point. Um, and it kind of makes sense. Like they're both, you know, both super fast. And there's some people that thought they could play wide receiver or running back or whatever, but it kind of insinuated that he's not a true quarterback. Um, and I, I also think there's the athlete quarterbacks, the dual threat quarterbacks. People tend to assume that their mental abilities aren't as good as the pocket, the, the pocket passer, like the old school Tom Brady types. And so for whatever reason, like I feel like with him, all those biases were ingrained in everybody's head and we all thought like uh like mate like Teddy Bridgewater, like he's not a not a career starter. Uh he's not a franchise QB. And obviously the Ravens thought differently and, and well, they did it right. You know what? I d I don't know if the Ravens thought differently, right? I mean they um like like I said, I think we were they were picking late in the twenties or in the mid twenties, right? And you know, it becomes kind of this uh, this kind of pluses and balances, and he ends up being mm-hmm. the 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 best available. I think you're I think you're dead on that. There is this, and, and look, I'm sympathetic to this, even as a statistician. That you look at, you try and make these holistic comparisons, so you try and find a guy that is like who they are, so you can sort mm-hmm. of easily communicate that. I'll tell you my issue with him and, and look and a hundred percent i think you're dead on i remember seeing his highlight reel back during those days and it didn't really look like a quarterback that was it and again it's like in you know in this crazy nuts 2021 it didn't look like that let's say cerebral quarterback who is going through his progressions and then right. hitting the fourth option he was just running all over. The it place. looked like a guy that was faster and stronger than other players on the team, like in Pee Wee football, that was going to score, you know, yeah. seven touchdowns a game. Because uh, no, you're right, you're right. It did. It looked very much like high school football mm-hmm. or even lower levels, where there's just a kid that's a better athlete than everybody, and he's just like running around and and just out athleticizing everyone and the feeling is always with those players that that's not going to work in the nfl you're not going to be that much better of an athlete than the other athletes are going to catch up and suddenly these nfl linebackers are going to you know and and this is the other part of the story that those nfl linebackers are going to be as fast as him or close to as fast as him and he's going to take some hits and he's going to be gone in a couple of years um the the injury side yeah i mean that was like rg3 rg3's whole thing 
Yeah, but but sort of live and learn. And like I said, you know, so who knows how this plays out, right? Because look, if I'm a Ravens fan, I almost, you know, I love watching him play. If I'm a, I'm not a Ravens fan. I mentioned I'm a Steelers fan. But if I'm a Ravens fan, right, I right. enjoy watching that, but I have a feeling I got a sense of dread every game that, you know, when are the hits going to start to take uh, take a toll? Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, I I think the biggest thing with that is the player being smart. Like I, I remember watching RG three, his, his rookie year. Um, and his first game, he was playing like he was playing high school football. He was running into linebackers. He was trying to get the extra yard and lower his shoulder. And I said, this guy is not going to last long in the NFL. I remember watching Johnny Manziel in his first preseason game doing the same things. Um, and thinking, how is he like? How did he make it through the SEC doing this? But he was so tiny, um, and Lamar just not a, a huge guy as far as his weight. Um, where you just had the feeling he was going to get hurt if, if you know, and, and of course he didn't make it for other reasons. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, I think I think a lot of it is a mental thing, and and the guys that do well know when to slide and know when to go out of bounds and and know how valuable they are, and that it's just not worth it for that extra yard. Um, so I mean, for Lamar's sake, you hope that that he's that guy, and and I think Michael Vick was a great example of of what Lamar could be as far as like the length of his career. Hopefully, off the field uh, has better. Now I'll better make luck. A, I'll make another observation, and this is something that is going to become, look, it's already important, but this is going to become ever more important over time, especially with the amount of money quarterbacks are going to make. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to this in a second. You know, I think Roethlisberger is scheduled for a $40 million cap hit as of now for next year for the Steelers. I think, I don't know, 38 Oof. or 39. And so Lamar Jackson at this point is a cost-controlled quarterback. And yeah. Rookie salary scales that are going to keep a player's, uh, you know, salary cap hit to at most a couple million dollars during the first several years of that player's career suddenly may change the calculus in terms of worrying about about injuries because Lamar Jackson is, you know, I'll come out and say it, you know, he is he's got to be just about the MVP of the league because of how little he makes. And, and you know what, I, I probably shouldn't come out and say yeah. that because I don't know if he's signed a uh, an extension. But in general, if he's still on the rookie salary scale, his talent is off the charts in terms of how much they have to compensate him. Yeah, he's got to be the best bang-for-your-buck player in the NFL. And for the longest time in the NBA, it was Steph Curry. And now you look at guys like Zion, um, and John ja Morant and, and these guys that are on their rookie contract but playing at an all-pro level. And, and Lamar playing at an MVP level already. There's already an argument to be made that he's the league MVP. Um, and last year he was. And doing that on that early contract, which I also think that can raise the argument, and this is a discussion for another day, the argument about those rookie contracts and, and whether um, that system is fair to the players many of whom are most productive in their early years. And if you look at the average, most players don't last in the league very long. And so their most productive years have to be those first three years. Well, I think you have to come in and say that it's not fair, right? I mean, look, this is one of my, um, this is one of my uh, 
kind of whipping horses. I don't know if that's actually a phrase. If not, I've never if not, heard that. Well, then I'm going to trademark it. Uh, like three people. Nice. Let's print, start printing up T-shirts. That the, um, you know, and especially for guys like Lamar Jackson, and you mentioned another, Nick Chubb. Now, in, in this case, right, it's Lamar Jackson because of his style of play. In the case, you know, because quarterbacks can play seemingly forever, right, till they're 40 if they are that level of talent. But the running mm-hmm. quarterback's going to tend to have relatively short careers. Nick Chubb is a running back. You know, there, there's probably no position that is disadvantaged as much yes. as running backs are by the current collective bargaining agreement in terms of how these guys are, how these guys are compensated. Yes. Um, and, and so we've seen this year in, year out, right? Levy and Bell. Um, Todd Gurley, Todd. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott, right? The, this dash to get compensated before the wear and tear really adds up. Well, and, and Nick had quite the amount of wear and tear in college. And so you kind of wonder, if you're the Cleveland Browns, do you really want that player beyond their first contract? Like, is it worth it? Because you know that likely his most productive years mm-hmm were when he was on that $10 million three- or four-year deal, whatever it was, or $9 million for him, I think. Um, and I don't know. I mean, with running backs, it's almost like if you just drafted a, a running back every three or four years and maybe a later round but got someone that can just you know carry the rock and, and maybe have a stable of running backs, it may be the most cost-effective way to go about doing it. If you look at Todd Gurley, Todd Gurley, um, his first few years was like an MVP. I think he was like offensive MVP one year for the Rams. And he got arthritis in his knee. And, and now he's just like a commodity. He signed a big deal with the Rams um, and made a lot of money. And not all of which was guaranteed. And, uh, and you know, ended up with the Falcons and, and just kind of bouncing around and, and not being that player that they paid for. They paid for the player that they had just had. He's no longer that player. Well, look, you know, Gurley's a great example. Levy and Bell, um, you know, basically sat out a season because he wanted the Steelers to pay them. The Steelers chose not to, went to the Jets. Um, James Conner broke out that year for the right, Steelers. Right, well, and, and I don't know what, James Conner is, but I don't think he was a particularly high draft pick. No. So he's, you know, you get the product, you get the production of a James Conner versus a Levy and Bell, and then look, you you look at the difference in price tag on those two yeah. players, and you're probably talking about, you know, ten, maybe it's a ten million dollar differential, and so then the question becomes, you know, how do you make that? How do you make that decision? And so th- these things all sort of come together that. Being a running back is really a tough place to be the way contracts currently work. They need running backs like that position more so than any other. Because quarterbacks oftentimes take time to come into their own and really become as valuable as their contracts um, become. Running backs almost every time. I mean, of course, there's Frank Gore and there's exceptions to the rule. But almost every time, those most productive years are those first three 
Um, Jonathan Taylor this year. I mean, I in fantasy football, I go after the rookie running backs every time because they're almost always undervalued because people haven't seen what they can do. But every single year, those guys are, are killing it. And this year, we saw it with uh, with Jonathan Taylor, um, DeAndre Swift for a stretch this year as well, as well as uh, the kid from LSU that, that plays for the Chiefs, um, Edwards Alaire. So th- those guys, I mean, they definitely, I would expect some kind of a players union well, fighting for rookie running backs to earn more. Let me, let me, well, the, the problem is, right, it's like, how do you, you need a running backs union, right? To, yeah, yeah. But let me amplify your point. Maybe some of the most productive years are not just one to three for the running backs. Maybe they're um, minus one and minus two, if you get where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. at the college level, uh, you know, look, NBA players can uh, some NBA some some guys can make an impact in the NBA a year or two out of high school, right? Some guys need the development time. Running backs are probably in that category that the you know the the five star running back is probably you know would have a great deal of value you know before they put the SEC mileage on those knees going straight to the league. It's um. You know, it's a look. When I grew up, being a running back was really the glamour position out there, where you right. had the O.J. Simpsons, the Walter Paytons. I think it's really fallen away from that at this point, and it, and it actually makes sense. You wonder how many star athletes try and go a slightly different direction, right? Is that why Lamar Jackson wanted to? And then again, this is just speculation. Better to be a quarterback than a running back for what you're going right. to make, right? Um, yeah, I I absolutely agree with <laughs> with that, and I don't know. It's funny because, like, as a fan, I mean, fans are always going to feel like, oh, these guys make so much that it doesn't matter, um, and, and they're lucky to be making as much as they do. And like, I I think you can make that argument, but I also think on the player side, like, it is a business, and they're um, currently in a deal that's probably not the best deal for for the running backs. Well, and, and let me add to that because it's, th- there's another issue that's going on. It's sort of one of my favorite issues out there because it, it really kind of typifies marketing's impact on sports. And, and it's related to this question about running backs and earning potential. And that's the name, image, and likeness legislation mm. that is or proposal that was going to be voted on by the NCAA Division One committee this, this week. It appears that they are going to shelve that proposal for the moment with the hopes of having a legislative solution. And I I think this is kind of a fascinating story to watch. So just to take a quick step back, the idea of name, image, and likeness, this goes back to the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit against EA Sports and the NCAA from years ago. Mm -hmm. The, The idea that collegiate athletes should be allowed to essentially market and monetize their personal brands. Now this, you know, there there was a settlement in the O'Bannon lawsuit. And as these things tend to do, there's almost an up and down. The image sort of, the the issue kind of faded for the moment. And Mm -hmm. then I think it was in 2019, there was some legislation in California that basically said, hey, California college athletes are going to be able to have NIL rights 
Uh, that quickly spread to some other states. And I think the, the big one in terms of the timing was Florida passed legislation right. that is going to go into effect this summer. So the NCA cobbled something together, and as soon as they did, they put it together last fall. Well, it, it, you know, everyone else, everyone out there decided it wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. So you had the uh, California, I think there's some new legislation out there. You've got some of the folks in the Senate talking about how you need a college athlete's bill of rights. All I think we can really say is at the moment that things are going to change dramatically moving forward. And NIL is a done deal. You're going to see endorsement deals at the collegiate level by the start of next season. Yeah. And with, with NIL, it's, it's funny to me because you look at it and you feel like, well, these schools really don't lose much. Like it's, if players are going to be compensated, the best thing for these athletic departments is for the players to go get compensated on their own, to go get endorsements, to go be their own business. Um, what the schools don't want to give up is the revenue from athletics and, and tickets and merchandise um, toward those players. And so I feel like for for the NCAA and schools, the reason why this thing has been so drawn out and so, I mean, for years um, is because they feel like it could be a, you know, it could open the doors for uh for, for that kind of thing. That's the next step. But people are never going to be satisfied. Uh, athletes are always going to feel like they're owed, um, that they're providing more value than they're being compensated for. And and once they're paid for their name, image, and likeness, I think the next step for unions of athletes is going to be, hey, they're, you know we're selling out these stadiums and all that money's going to the athletic department and they're not on the field providing the product. Um, and, and so it'll be interesting to keep up. I don't think this thing's ever going to be over. I, I think that's tr- true that the, uh, it, it is one of these situations where there's always going to be another incremental st- stop, right? And, and look, mm-hmm. you, you've seen that the NCAA's proposal was basically you can, you can do endorsements and the quick response was, well, this is still too restrictive, Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, and, and everything kind of goes full circle, right? You know, going back to the very beginning of the of the show where I mentioned that sports is part of the culture and the culture is essentially at this point wedded to, to politics. It, it, at this point, the momentum is definitely on the side for player compensation and player freedom. And it is going to be, it's going to be, you know, I hate, it almost sounds cliched. It's going to be interesting when players can do all sorts of deals right out of high school in terms of how they start to manage their careers um, while they are, you know, formerly would have been amateur athletes. So, you know, the, so the, the thing with, with NIL is that, and I think this has got to be the key idea. And so I'm not talking about fairness for the moment. I'm not talking about the you know equity or the political side is that it is going to change how athletes approach their careers. It is going to, you know, one, one of the provisions in the proposal is that athletes can sign endorsement deals, but not endorsement deals that conflict with the school's marketing arrangements. So you imagine a situation. I, I think Indiana, for example, is an Adidas school. Mm-hmm. So let's say the next Zion Williamson is coming out of a you know Indianapolis, 
And he has, you know, essentially Nike has come Nike has come knocking on his door. Suddenly, is he going to go to a Nike school or is he going to go to the home state Indiana Hoosiers? Nike school for sure. And it's going to be a Nike school, right? So they, they, they put in these rules to say, well, you can't have these conflicts, but they don't think through the, we'll say the unintended consequences in terms of where this is going to go. You know, the other side, something we talk a lot about is, you know, the easing the rules on things like transfers. And, and so we are clearly moving into an era. The question is just how quickly do we get there? with a lot more player freedom. And, and look, 100% agreed, this is a good thing. If coaches can take mm-hmm. a different job every yeah. year, then why can't players go where they want to play? But it is going to fundamentally change college sports. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Mike, I have a question for you because you're the you're the NIL guy. That's <laughs> that's kind of, you've taken that on and um, become an expert in the area. What happens when Florida in California put together legislation that affords these players opportunities to, to earn money from their name, image, and likeness. Uh, but the NCAA doesn't quite put anything together. They, they continue to drag it out and, and have no final um, stance on things. It, yeah. does, does Florida get to, do Florida players get to earn and, and California players and nobody else? And I think this is, I think you've kind of identified the key, the key problem right now that the NCAA had a proposal. The response to the proposal basically was that it it wasn't enough. And the NCAA is now desperately trying to push this out of their hands. They're desperately trying to get the Congress and the Senate to act in terms of coming up with a legislated solution so they don't have to come up with basically a negotiated solution. Because like when California moved, then suddenly we had this this terrible issue, right, of that it, it just wasn't going to work, mm-hmm. right? That the California athletes were not going to be able to kind of compete with the non-California athletes because the rules were fundamentally different. And so by Florida putting that phase in date of next July suddenly this is a bit of a a bit of a crisis and the NCAA doesn't know how to fix it so i think it's a full on effort now to to punt the ball and hope that someone else comes up with a unified approach mm. and then they can uh, you know but i but i think you're right it is going to everything's going to be a temporary fix this is going to evolve for the next few years yeah my concern is like it needs to be, it seems like it needs to either be an NCAA level issue and they don't necessarily want that. Um, so at that point, it needs to be a federal government issue. I can't imagine that this is high on the priority list of the federal government right now. Um, I can't imagine that. And so if it's a state issue, if if states are creating legislation and dictating what players in that state can do, it's that's going to dramatically. I mean, right now, Florida would immediately become the powerhouse. USC would become a powerhouse. UCLA would become a powerhouse. Uh, Stanford would would return to its former glory, and and we would see the the Florida. I mean, Miami would return to its former glory. Uh, FSU. So um, it, it certainly would benefit the states that uh, that are 
ahead on their legislation. And I, I think that would, I'd certainly know the Georgia governor would get the ball rolling and it, it would kind of incentivize maybe some of these other states to get things moving as well. Look, look as crazy as it sounds, you can imagine, you know, like we, we've had this situation in this country for a long time of states competing for businesses, right? And, you know, part of the reason why people build NFL stadiums, palaces, modern day cathedrals like the Mercedes Benz mm-hmm. um, in Atlanta or whatever you want to, what, I don't know what the nickname is for the thing they built out in Las Vegas. But these, again, kind of amazing facilities is to attract the businesses. And so you could almost imagine a scenario, unless there's this kind of global approach to it or national approach to it, that suddenly, hey, college athletics is big business and the states now have incentives to continually open things up. And NIL is really kind of just be the starting point in all of this, right? You know, even after all this, there isn't really any discussion about the institution's compensating the players it's just a matter of players having the freedom to monetize it's hard for me to imagine as you said it yourself it's hard to imagine that this is that this is the ending line it seems like the next step is again more liberalized transfers some type of a player union some type of a compensation structure it seems like we're just it's kind of an interesting one. We all kind of know where we're going. We just don't know how long it's going to take to get there. Yes, and in that sense, I think that these athletic departments probably view name, image, and likeness as a gateway drug, um, a gateway drug to the drug of players getting that high of, of being compensated and wanting more and wanting to attain more of it and trying to find newer and bigger ways of doing it. And of course, that would you know end up leading to uh, a push for player compensation directly from schools, which you know, as I said, is probably an athletic department's worst nightmare. Okay, to end the to end the episode, I'm going to ask you, uh, and I'll put my opinions out there too. Let's stay in the world of NIL. Uh, And so here's the question. Assume NIL goes into place, that some type of solution is reached. And, you know, let's say basically the idea is that players can enjoy, they can monetize their brands. They can do endorsements. They can do, you know, autographs. They can essentially start to market themselves Mm -hmm. a la Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Right. Who, identify one school that you see as a winner and another school that you see as a loser in this new environment? Man, I'm having to think through this. I definitely think... Um, you want me to... I'll, I'm, I'll happily go first. You want me to go first? Yeah, you go first. I Notre Dame football is the one I'll put there as a potential big winner. You know, Notre Dame is a school that is a kind of a, it's, it's a legacy brand in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Notre Dame has really struggled for the past couple of decades. I think there's some statistic out there that over the last 15 years, they've lost every high-level bowl game they've been in by two, three touchdowns. But Notre Dame still has some really appealing characteristics as a marketing, as a brand, right? So Notre Dame has a nationwide fan base. Notre Dame still gets invited to these bowl games. So it's a very powerful marketing instrument. 
And so you just imagine a scenario and look, I'll, I'll put this out there. You imagine some big armed quarterback from the Indianapolis suburbs choosing mm-hmm. between Purdue, the cradle of quarterbacks and Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. I suspect that that person's uh, income is going to be much, much higher at the Notre Dame. So I, I think a school with that kind of very powerful old school brand equity and nationwide fan base could be that has fallen a little bit on hard times, a little bit, could be a big winner. In, in terms of the losers, I think you know schools like my uh, alma mater, Illinois, are the ones that are going to be in a little bit of in a little bit of danger. So schools that don't have a natural kind of marketing appeal. Um, you know, you might think Illinois has the you know, state of Illinois and Chicago, but that's really a pro market. So they could be in a little bit more of a disadvantage and sort of the glamour gets, gets you know, a little bit more reduced, a little bit lessened. And, and so, you know, this is kind of the concern. Do you start to see additional segmentation of, you know, it gets, it gets ever more, everything that happens makes it harder for Illinois to compete with Ohio State. And I got news for you. They're not competitive with Ohio State right now. Yeah. So looking at this and thinking about professional sports and what draws free agents to to different teams, oftentimes it is the endorsements and the potential to earn off of the field or off of the court. Um, they will go to a big market because of the endorsement opportunities and the fandoms in those markets and you know a number of reasons. So when I look at this, I think a school like USC mm. is perfectly positioned. They're in Los Angeles, um, and, and you see often, of course, the Lakers are the team that attracts everyone. Um, and, of course, part of that is the Lakers' mystique, but USC is no slouch in that department. I mean, that's a... That is a historic football program, much like Notre Dame, uh, maybe not to the same level as Notre Dame with the mystique, but they've had a lot of success over the years and they've had a lot of dominant championship teams. And so looking at where they're positioned location-wise in Los Angeles in that big market and then the fact that they have that big brand that players can tie their brand to, I think USC was one I would certainly keep an eye on uh, looking at the big market aspect and, and, you know, maybe that's something where Illinois could benefit off of the, the Chicago market or whatnot. But like you said, it's, it's a little bit different there. Yeah. No, look, it, it, and our, our two projections kind of go hand in hand. Now you imagine a scenario where the two big armed quarterbacks, one goes to Notre Dame, one goes to USC. That's, you know, it, it's made for TV, right? It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, loser here. I'll throw in, um, and this is this is kind of iffy, but I'll explain. I'm going to say Alabama. Um, yeah, my reason why is first off, you don't have that big market. They do have that brand, right? Um, I don't know if necessarily that brand is is the same audience that these players are wanting to appeal to. Um, but the thing with Alabama is things they could. No team has benefited more from the current system than Alabama. They don't want anything to change, I don't think. I think status quo is the way to go with Alabama. Um, anything I, I, changes, like it it can only go downhill from here. Like maybe, maybe they're able to maintain what they've got going, 
But if you bring in schools like USC and, and make them huge players for these top players in the country and some competition that isn't already there and some advantages to some other schools that are in bigger markets or whatnot, um, I, I think it could only hurt a school like Alabama. I, I think, you know, you're you're dead on there because and you can almost add one caveat to that, right? It's that Alabama post Nick Saban. Right, is is part of the story, but but I think you're dead on, right? It's like if Alabama is this don, dominant, you change the system, then odds are they're going to take a you change the system and they're probably going to take a step back. So I think it's a it's a dramatic it's a dramatic conjecture, but I think you're probably dead on that. Maybe they fall back to being a top ten program versus right. a top one or two. I, I just think it would I think it would increase competition for them. But I will say Alabama withstood. The BCS turning to the playoff. Alabama was dominant in the yeah. BCS recently um, in, in its late years, and then they've been dominant in the entire playoff era. So they've adapted to change better than any school in college football. Uh, Nick Saban's the master at that. Um, so, so we'll we'll see what happens. But I'm just saying, like, if it becomes a big market versus small market thing for for these big prospects and players are trying to build their brands in New York and Los Angeles. Um, I don't think that would be the best thing for Alabama. Okay, so let's wrap this up. And so, you know, thank everyone for listening. As always, there's much more content at fandomanalytics.com. We are ending, entering into a wild ride in terms of 2021. Hey, it looks like it's going to be a wilder ride than 2020 was in a lot of reasons. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and look, Fandom is a great lens for watching the world evolve. It's almost like a safe, Doug, it's almost like a safe space for watching politics and culture, right? It's a political and cultural war going on right now. Mm -hmm. We can watch the downstream ramifications in terms of the, the games we, uh, the games we love.